Thank you for listening to the sermon podcast of Grace Point Church in Atlantic, Iowa. My name is Don McLean. I'm the senior pastor here at Grace Point. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can check us out at gracepointatlantic.com. And in the meantime, grab your Bible and check out this week's sermon. Good morning. Welcome to those of you who are watching us online, either now or by delay. Sometimes people catch it later, I know. Uh, It's good to be together. We're going to get right into this morning's text, so let's pray and ask the Lord's help. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. We thank you for uh, the fellowship we enjoy with each other. We thank you for our church. We thank you for the freedom to be able to, to worship openly to drive here openly. We didn't have to sneak here in small groups. We, uh, we were free to come, and we, we praise you for that. But even more than that, Lord, we thank you for the, the desire to do so. Uh, what a joy to wake up and, and to want to worship uh, our Creator and our Savior. And so we thank you for uh, inviting us into your presence this morning that way, in, in, a, in a special way here in the church. And we would pray for your help. Help us with this passage, Lord. Uh, rich things here that we need to understand to serve you better and, and live for you better. And so I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of each one of our hearts would be pleasing to you. And we ask this in the name of our rock and our redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if you watch the Super Bowl tonight, you're probably going to see a, a pretty good game. It looks to me anyway like it's a, it's a good matchup. I hope it's a good game. If you're one of those people, though, who's more into the commercials you're probably going to see something surprising. You're going to see a commercial about Jesus. Maybe a couple of them, from what I gather. Uh, The commercials are part of a campaign called He Gets Us, and uh, maybe you've heard of this. It sounds like at least some of you have heard of it, Uh, and and maybe even seen some of these, because they're not debuting tonight. They've actually been running, at least this campaign's been going for for months now. Uh, There's a print version in billboards, but uh, the the video ones, the the 30-second ad type, Uh, involve a series of pictures. And so it's like black and white pictures. So you can watch for these tonight if you're watching the game. Uh, It'll be a series of black and white pictures that kind of tell a story. And and so, for example, uh, and and they're pictures of people, people like like us. And and so there's one, for example, that shows refugees, uh, people who are, you know, know, in in lines of people fleeing from somewhere or uh, backpacks with all their belongings and that sort of thing. And, and while those pictures are scrolling on the screen, there's a voiceover talking about Mary and Joseph and how they had to run away with their baby Jesus and they had to flee from persecution by Herod and run off to Egypt. And, and then near the end of the commercial, it says, Jesus was a refugee too. He gets us. And those words are printed on the screen. Uh, there's another one that focuses on families and uh, 
there's you know people who are having a happy time in their family and they're at birthday parties and celebrations but then as the commercial unfolds there start to be pictures of couples arguing and parents yelling at their children and children yelling at their parents and and they're they're you know not all happy and you see those scenes and and then it gets to the end and it says jesus disagreed with loved ones too he gets us he knows what it's like uh, it will surprise exactly no one to hear that the ads have provoked some controversy. Uh, it's, the usual, uh, it's the usual objections. Why can't you Christians keep your religion to yourself? Uh, aren't there better ways to spend the money than probably a million-dollar Super Bowl spots? Uh, who's paying for these ads anyway? Is there some secret agenda behind all of this? What's going on? Uh, there's been interest. You know, it's been in newspapers and blogosphere and Twitter probably talking about it, and everybody else is arguing about it. Uh, you can ponder those questions yourselves uh, this afternoon over some nachos. Uh, what I want to say about those commercials is that the premise is spot on. The, uh, whatever you think about spending all that money on a Super Bowl spot, the, the, the premise, the idea is 100% right. He does get us. Jesus does understand what it's like to be a human being. And that's what this morning's text is about. We're continuing in our study through Hebrews. We are studying uh, through Hebrews. If you're visiting this morning or you haven't been here in a little while, that, that's what we're doing this uh, spring. We're going to get through like the first half of Hebrews is my goal. And uh, so far, we've been focusing mostly on the supremacy of Jesus. That's what the first section of the book is about. And uh, actually, we're going to talk about the supremacy of Jesus in a few different angles. But the first one we talk about is his supremacy over angels. And that's chapters 1 and 2. And, and so we've talked so far about how Jesus is greater than all the cosmic powers, right? The angelic beings, but then everything else that might exist too. He's greater than all of it. Uh, the authors made this case. First, he, he talked about the deity of Jesus. And so Jesus is greater than the angels because he is God. That's the real emphasis of chapter one. And now as we're into chapter two, uh, we've, also, we've been talking about how Jesus is also greater than the angels because of his humanity. So there's parts about his, his humanity also makes him greater than the angelic beings. And I told you last week we we're going to break that into two parts, the humanity part. And so last week we talked about uh, the purpose of his humanity, and that's really verses 5 through 9 in this chapter. And, and we talked about how Jesus fulfills what we were made for. Human beings were created with a purpose. We couldn't complete that purpose, and so Jesus did it for us. Jesus fulfills what humans are made for. Now, the, the verses we're looking at this morning takes right off on that. It basically expands on that. In fact, you can see the connection in the text. Uh, verse 9 uh, talks about how Jesus tasted death for us, and then verse 10, where we pick up, builds on that by connecting his death, this death he tasted for us, connects it directly now to our salvation in Jesus. And that's, that's the main thing we're talking about this morning. Jesus not only fulfilled our purpose for us, but he also did what we needed to be saved. And so Jesus completed what we needed for salvation. That's the point of verse 10. That's what verse 10 is talking about. And, and I want to take a little bit more time uh, this morning to talk about verse 10. So if you like a nice balanced outline, this is going to throw you a little bit. Um, I, I want to spend a few minutes with verse 10 so we understand it. Uh, th there's a few, one of the things that I think makes he Hebrews a difficult book or a challenging book to, to study is that there's a few verses in here where you read it and you go, what does that mean? 
And you read it again and again and again and again and about six times, and you're like, I still don't understand what that means. Uh, this verse is one of those to my mind. And so I think, I mean, it's definitely understandable, but we just have to work a little harder. So I want to spend a few minutes showing you verse 10. I'm actually going to put it up here. I don't always do that. But I want to put this verse up here, and I want to take it apart and understand what it's saying, and then we'll bring in all the other stuff that'll help us understand. Once we understand verse 10, the rest of it makes more sense. So, so verse 10 Uh, It simply says, it's up there on the wall, you can read it. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So, starts out by saying, it was fitting. So, it was fitting. Something was was fitting. And that that, uh, phrase means to be appropriate or right. So, it was right. Whatever it is we're going to talk about in this verse, uh, there was a right way to do it, and this was it. There's a right way to do it, and God's going to do it. It was fitting, is, is the idea. Um, and, and that's the he, so I just, I just said it. It was fitting that he, and that refers to the Father. So again, this is one of the first decisions that has to be made. You look at that, and you go, who's the, who's the he there? The he is God the Father. So God the Father, and we know that it's God the Father because it's, it's not Jesus. It's not Jesus because Jesus is referenced later in the verse. Right? So the founder of their salvation, that's Jesus. And it's clear from this whole context that Jesus is the one we're talking about. Uh, you might have noticed this. I, I, Jesus' name was just said for the first time in the letter uh, in verse, uh, there in verse 9. So we've just, up until this point, he's been called the son, but now he's called Jesus, namely Jesus. And so he's the, the founder of, of our salvation. We're the there, right? So it's, he's the one we're going to talk about here. Uh, and so he is the father, the founder of their salvation is Jesus. Jesus is the one the father is going to do something with that's going to be fitting. Uh, the word founder, I wanted to touch on that verse, that word real quick. Uh, the word means, it can mean a, a couple of things. It can mean the leader of something, or it can mean the, the founder of something, right? So you, you talk about you know, the leader of a company, but isn't necessarily the founder of a company. So you have different ways of using that word. The emphasis here is more on the founder aspect. So there's something that Jesus, he's the pioneer. In fact, I think the NIV uses that word. He's the pioneer. He's the trailblazer. He's, he's the one who got it all started. He's the one. Without him uh, breaking his way through the brush and cutting it all down so that we could get through, none of us could get through. He's, he's the pioneer. Uh, of what? Of our salvation. And that's what the other... Uh, or another tricky part in this verse is talking about bringing many sons to glory. That's a reference to our salvation. That's talking about bringing us to salvation. And it's, uh, it's, a, it's, it's continuing this theme of sonship. That's been another one that's been running through the letter up to this point. You remember how we were introduced to Jesus back in chapter 1, verse 2. Uh, he's the son, capital S, most Bibles are going to do, uh, right? He's the son through whom God has spoken in these last days. And so God has a son, God, the son of God, the second person of the Trinity. But now look what we're doing here in this chapter. Now we're going to see God actually has a plan for many sons, not, not the same as Jesus, we're, we're, but because of our identification in him, because we're with him and in him, uh, we're united to him by faith. And so Jesus is the founder of our salvation because God's going to use Jesus to bring us into sonship. He's going to make us his sons and his daughters. So it's, it's that idea. So bringing to glory is talking about salvation. That's why he's the founder of our salvation. And then we get to what's probably the trickiest part here, or we're getting there anyway. Uh, it's this idea of suffering. 
So what, how, what was the fitting plan that God had? What was going to work? What was going to do it? It was he was going to do it through the suffering. So he's going to make the founder of our salvation, Jesus, he's going to make Jesus perfect, is the word it says, perfect through suffering. That right there is probably the most confusing part of, of this passage. Uh, in what sense does that make, in what sense does that make sense? I, I mean, we just spent all this time establishing in chapter one that Jesus is God. Uh, if, if Jesus is God, then he's perfect. And so in what sense, why are we now talking about making Jesus perfect when Jesus is already perfect, right? What, what's going on there? And, the, and, and so is Jesus perfect or not, right? The answer is yes, Jesus is perfect, right? So we're going to make sure we understand this correctly. Uh, there is no flaw in Jesus. No flaw, no defect, no deficit, no shortcoming. He always is and always has been uh, perfect. So what does that mean? What's the author saying? Well, the answer is you got to understand what this word make perfect means. Uh, the word means to, to bring something to completion. Right, so we see perfect, and there's a, an English understanding of the word that we import here to this Greek word. Uh, and so I, when I think of making something perfect, I think of something that's not as good as it could be, and I'm going to make it perfect, right? So you students, you, you, take a ta- you take a quiz, you get a 90% on the quiz, and maybe that's great, but maybe you'd like it higher, the teacher offers a retake, and so you go back, you retake the quiz, and now you get 100 Right? So you took that 90% and you made it perfect. Right? You, you've, you've made it perfect. You fixed the one question you got wrong, or something like that. That is not what this word is talking about. Right? This word does not mean to take something that's broken and to fix it. It means to take something to, to, to the, end of its perfect, the end of its purpose, to bring it to completion, which is why I'm using that word this morning. And so the word means to accomplish or fulfill or complete something's purpose. Uh, let, let me uh, give you the, the best picture I could find for how this works. Uh, spring is coming, right? So spring is coming soon. And uh, a few weeks from now, in your front yard or somebody else's front yard, maybe your neighbor's front yard, some flowers will start to come up. And after a little while, a little more sunshine, a little more warmth, those flowers will start to have a bud, right? And so you look at the one on the, on the left-hand side there in that picture. There will be a bud. There's nothing wrong with that bud, Right? There's no disease, there's no flaw, there's nothing wrong with it. It's a perfectly good bud. It's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. But it's not complete. It hasn't fulfilled its purpose yet. If a squirrel comes along and bites up the top, bites the top of it off, there's a little bit of a sense of tragedy there, right? It, it, doesn't, it, it didn't get to fulfill its purpose. And so it's not flawed, but it's not done yet. It's not complete. But you give it a little more sun, some more warmth, some more water, and so on, Eventually, what's that bud going to do? It's going to bloom, and you're going to get what you're looking at on the right-hand side. Now it's complete, right? Now, why is, it, why is it complete? It's fulfilled its purpose. It did what it was supposed to do. It's beautiful, and it's ready to pollinate, and all the other things that, that a flower does. And so that flower, there was nothing wrong with the bud, but the flower is where the bud was headed. The, the flower is where the 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 flower is where the bud was going all along. That's what verse 10 means when it says Jesus was made perfect, right? So when Jesus came to earth, there was no flaw in him. He was perfect. No stain of sin, no moral deficiency, nothing. And for the 30 plus years of his earthly life, that's how he lived. He was perfect. Again, no sin, no flaw, nothing like that. But he hadn't completed his purpose yet. He needed to go all the way to the end. He needed to go to the cross, 
Because the cross, the suffering, and that's why it's completed on suffering, right? It's made perfect through suffering. That's, that's a reference to the cross. It's talking, about, it's talking about the cross because the cross is where it was finished. The, the cross is where the bud came into full bloom. But then the other thing we have to remember to understand this whole concept of humanity of Jesus, the humanity of Jesus and why it matters to us, which is what we get to in just a moment, what we have to remember is that the cross didn't happen in isolation. Right? The cross, the cross is, is absolutely uh, necessary, but it wasn't by itself. Right? Jesus didn't come to earth on Thursday morning, give a quick sermon, do the Last Supper, Right? It wasn't a 48-hour deal or a 24-hour deal when he came to save us. It was a whole lifetime. And that's why the humanity of Jesus is so important. The cross is the capstone on his redemptive human life. It's what he did to, come to finish it, but the whole package is essential for us. Right? So he lived a perfect human life, and then he died a perfect human death. It all goes together. That's why the humanity of Jesus is so important here. Now, that's verse 10. The rest of this passage just uh, develops that idea, and it actually is very practical. So all of that, I don't know if that feels practical to you or not. If nothing else, I hope you understand that verse better. But, but now the rest of this stuff, verses 11 through 18, we just see a series of benefits. Right? So Jesus did all that for us in his humanity. He was made perfect through suffering in God's wisdom. It, this was fitting that he do this. And there are these benefits. And I want to talk about four. This is how I've, I've organized the rest of this. I want to spend the rest of our time talking about four benefits that we enjoy, four benefits that, that we have because of the humanity of Jesus and because of what he did for us in his humanity. So, so let, me, let me show you. Let, let's see how good it is that he gets us. Let's see how good it is. Uh, benefit number one, is that he welcomes us into his family. He, he, his humanity is, is a big part of this idea that we are welcomed into, this reality that we are welcomed into God's family. And that's what verses 11, 12, and 13 are about. So I'm going to group these verses together. So I'm going to read them again. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he that the one who, who sanctifies, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. So first part of verse 11, he who sanctifies is Jesus. He's the one who makes us holy. Uh, that's what the word sanctifies means. It means to make holy. It's a direct uh, reference to the cross and what Jesus did for us there. Uh, those who are being sanctified, that leaves us in the equation. That's us. He's making us holy. So he's the one who makes holy. We're the ones who are being made holy. The key part of that verse, though, I mean, that's, that's just, just gospel there. The key part of this verse for where the author goes with it is this idea that they all have one source. So the one who makes holy and the ones who are being made holy are all from one, is actually literally what it says in Greek. Uh, the Greek, uh, Greek is, is more ambiguous than what our English translations give us. It simply says they're all from one. They're all from one. And it doesn't specify what the one is, which is why if you're one of those folks, and I, I recommend this, if you're one of those who likes to compare different translations to kind of see what's coming out, um, you'll, you'll get variety on this part of the verse. So ESV, which I use, is uh, one source, it says, but NIV says the same family. New International Version, the same family. Christian Standard Bible, one father. New Living Translation, the same father. 
Um, I actually, I think the ones that talk about father are probably the best. I would prefer those translations on this part of the verse because that is the idea here. And it brings in that family relationship when it talks about brothers. It's going to talk about it in the quote in verse 12, and it's going to use the word brothers at the end of verse, at the end of verse 11. And so, um, and so there's this idea of family. And so the one sanctifying and the ones being sanctified all have the same father. Right? That's one of the benefits. Jesus shares the Father with us now. We all have the same Father. God makes us his children through what Jesus did for us in his humanity on the cross. And then the author supports this with two quotations. Uh, I'm not going to actually spend a lot of time with the quotations. We've, this is something the author of Hebrews is going to do. Uh, there were like seven quotations in chapter one. We looked at a, a longer quotation last week from, chapter, uh, from Psalm 8. Uh, here's two more. So two more quotes. If you want to note where they are, uh, the first one, the one in verse 12, is actually found in Psalm 22. It's a messianic psalm. It's, it's a, one about the cross, actually, Jesus' experience on the cross. Psalm 22, verse 22. And then the other quote comes, in, it's in verse 13, and your Bible probably breaks it into two pieces, but it's actually the same passage. Uh, it's Isaiah 8. So you could look up Isaiah 8, verses 17 and 18. That's where verse 13 comes from. The reason the author uses those two quotes is that both of them, in their context, are emphasizing God's solidarity with his people, right? And so it, it has to do with God welcoming his people, um, caring for his people, being in solidarity with his people. And so I think that's the reason, and especially that one with the brothers, it's that idea of family. And so the author grabs those two quotes from the Old Testament, and he says, that's what's going on here. Jesus uh, is, is in solidarity with. He welcomes us into his family. He, he makes us his people. And so there's this tightness between them. That's the function of the two quotes. And, and, but really, verse 11 in that section is the key one because it helps us understand why those quotes are there. And so that's benefit number one. He makes us his family. Jesus welcomes us into his family. And, and, it's not, and, and this is where the humanity really matters because it's not resentfully or begrudgingly but, but gladly. He's glad to welcome us into God's family. That's this idea of he's not ashamed, right? He's not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. This is a, a warm relationship, right? It's a warm family relationship. That's what we are being welcomed into because of Jesus. He, he joined our family by becoming a human being, and then he invited us into his. He made us sons and daughters with him of the Father. This means a couple of things. Uh, it means, for example, that we're accepted. Right? You think about acceptance. We are accepted by the most important person in the, in the universe. He accepts us. God accepts us. Uh, the world doesn't always accept us. Right? Our, our friends don't always accept us. Sometimes our own families don't accept us. Some of you have had that experience. But Jesus accepts us. Jesus accepts us. He welcomes us. He's not ashamed. He welcomes us into, our, into his family. And that not ashamed part, I want to camp on that for just another couple of minutes here. He's not ashamed of us. He's not ashamed of us. This goes back to this idea that he gets us. He gets us. Why is he, why is he not ashamed? He's not ashamed because he knows. Right? He, he knows what it's like to be human. Jesus knows what it's like to live a full human life and he's still not ashamed. He's still not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. I think this is amazing. Uh, let me try to say this as tactfully as I can. Uh, there is an earthiness to the human experience. 
right? Uh, there's an earthiness to being a human being. Uh, we eat, we drool sometimes, we chew with our mouths open, some of us anyway. Uh, we burp, right? We digest, we go to the bathroom, we smell, we bleed, we sweat, we have sex, we snore, we scratch ourselves, we get sick and stuff comes running out of our noses. And he's not ashamed of any of it. He's not ashamed of, he's not embarrassed by any of it. Think about that. Jesus, the Lord of glory, the Son of God, is not ashamed to call us his brothers and sisters. I'm convinced that the angels, it's one of the things that most mortifies the angels. Other, smarter people than me have made the case that it's one of the reasons Satan rebelled. He looked at these, these creatures, you and me, that God made, who, are, who do all those things, and he said, what? That? You put your image on that? And, and was so offended by our earthiness that, that he led a, a great rebellion against God in heaven. Not Jesus. Jesus said, I think I'll go become one of those. He, he joined us in our humanity, and he's not ashamed. He's not ashamed of our humanity. He even calls us brothers and sisters. And so if he's not ashamed of our humanity, we shouldn't be either. I don't know if anybody here struggles with this. I know some people do, but I don't know if any of you do. But if you are uncomfortable with your humanity... If you're uncomfortable with, with your body or with your sexuality or with some imagined flaw in your appearance, you look in the mirror and you're like, ooh, I don't like the way my nose looks or my, my eyebrows or whatever it is. If, you, if you're uncomfortable with anything like that, you do not have to be because Jesus isn't. Jesus isn't ashamed of your humanity. And so you shouldn't be either. So that's benefit number one. We are welcomed. We are welcomed into his family. He accepts us and, and he approves of us. He's not ashamed of us. Benefit number two. The second benefit that we see in this text is that Jesus liberates us from death. He liberates us from death. That's what it says uh, in verses 14 and 15. He continues, Since therefore uh, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death we're subject to lifelong slavery. So he starts first, he says, uh, we share in flesh and blood. And so you and I, we share in flesh and blood. We're human, every one of us, we're flesh and blood. Jesus partook of that, right? So it's a reference, it's the incarnation. He, he partook of the same things. He became flesh and blood too. He did this for, uh, with a purpose. He did it so that he could die. I'm just going to kind of follow the logic of the verse here. Uh, he, he, he became flesh and blood. He partook of flesh and blood with us so that he could die. Uh, you can't die if you're not alive. And so he uh, lived a human life. One of the reasons Jesus lived a human life was to die a human death. Back to this idea, bringing many sons to glory, right? So his vision, his purpose of bringing you and me, many sons and daughters to glory, uh, to salvation in Jesus, this is what, you know, his motivation for becoming human. So, so he becomes human uh, so that he can die a human death. He dies a human death so that he will accomplish something. It's to destroy the one who has the power of death. Right, so you look at the verse, it's to destroy the one who has the power of, of death. We are not left to wonder who that is. The author doesn't want us confused here. And so he tells us who it is. It's the devil, right? That is the devil. Uh, that does not mean the devil controls when we die. He does not. I think that's very clear from Scripture. God keeps that authority for himself. Our, he's the one who appoints our days. But there's still lots of other power left, right? Power associated with death that the devil does exercise starting with, maybe most notably, the power to cause fear. 
right? And that's the one that verse 15 focuses on. Jesus uh, died a human death so that he could destroy, right, the one who caused, the one who has the power of death and deliver us from the fear of death. That's the power in this passage that's focused on. So, so he did all that to, to remove, to, to deliver us. It's the word redeem. It's to set us free from our fear of death. And if you think about that, that is a quintessential human experience, right? Being afraid of, of death. It is a very human thing. We all deal with it, right? It's universal. We all deal with it. Even when we're very young and we don't even know what the word means, we can just pick up from the people around us that, that, it's, that it's a scary thing. Right? And, and, and it is, right? Death is, is, is frightening for all kinds of reasons. It brings grief, it brings loss, it brings pain, it brings destruction, uh, and, and it seems so senseless sometimes, right? Sometimes, you know, there's that you know, sense of a, well, a full life well-lived and somebody's, you know, 95 or whatever, and, and, and there's a sense of, of maybe a sense of completeness to it, but sometimes it just seems so senseless. I think of the news reports, even just this week out of Turkey and Syria, you've probably followed a little bit of this, Uh, 28,000 people, I I checked the count this morning, 28,000 people, and they're saying the number's going to go a lot higher, 28,000 people killed uh, by those earthquakes. It's, It's heartbreaking, it's tragic, it's senseless, men, women, children, grandparents, sometimes entire families, and, and it's just, it's awful. And we all know in the back of our minds we could be next. Right? Just talk about the fear of death. We all know that, that we could be next at any time. And, and so there's a, a, a scariness about that. It's, it's, it's scary that way. But according to verse 15, what Jesus has done for us sets us free from that. He sets us free from it. Not because he makes those fears disappear. There's lots of, of damage that death does this side of eternity, right? It's not that he makes the fears disappear. It's that he offers something far better on the other side of those. And so, yes, death does bring grief and pain and loss. But for those who trust in Jesus, it also brings beyond that peace and joy. And, and a big part of that comes from all the promises. Uh, Jesus said, I'm going to go and prepare a place for you, John 14. We don't know all the details, but, but we know that when we leave here, we get to be with him there. Right, we, we know that. That's a big part of the peace and the joy. But then another part, and I actually think it's, it's a, this part is more connected to his humanity, and so it's, it's more here, is this idea that Jesus went first. He went first, right? He died. You know, it's like a little kid learning how to jump in the pool, and so, you know, the older brother jumps in first. So I was like, all right, well, he did it. I can do it too. That's what Jesus went first. He, he died a fully human life, and then God raised him from the dead. That's why Easter is so important. One of the many reasons. God raised him from the dead. And so Jesus didn't stay dead forever, and neither will we. That's the promise here. God will raise us to life just like he did our older brother, just like he did with Jesus. And so that, that's a big part of this, liberating us from death. We'll, we will die unless Jesus comes back, you know, if, we, if we're blessed to be that generation when he returns for us at the very, very end. But otherwise, we will die. But it doesn't hold it, that grip of fear on us that it would if we didn't have Christ. Number three, the third benefit we enjoy in this text is that uh, Jesus cleanses us. He cleanses us from our sin. A lot of basic core gospel now as we get into this part. Uh, he, because of his humanity, 
And that's the connection here. That's the context here. Because of his humanity, Jesus is able to remove, to wash away our sins. That's verses 16 and 17. For surely, picking up in verse 16, for, for surely or certainly it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. There's that humanity again. So that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So the author, we go back to angels, because remember, that's the bigger, the whole, he's showing how Jesus is greater than the angels, so we got to go back to angels one more time. Uh, Jesus didn't come for the angels. And that's what he says there at the beginning of verse 16. And, and we talked about this back in chapter 1. A, a, a third, Scripture teaches that a third of the angelic beings rebelled against God in the distant past. And so they're, they're evil and they're lost, right? Those angels are not going to spend eternity with God, that, that third of fallen angels. And Jesus doesn't help them, right? It, it, it's a very kind of stark statement. It's not angels that he came to help. It's not angels, right? When, when verse 10 talks about bringing many sons to glory, it's not the angels. They're not included in verse 10. Who is? It's us. It's the offspring of Abraham, actually, is how the author of Hebrews, remember, writing to Jewish Christians, uh, it's the offspring of, a of Abraham. There's at least two reasons. Well, maybe I just added a third, I suppose. Th uh, three reasons. Why not? Three reasons Abraham is mentioned here. One is the Jewish Christians are really going to sync with Abraham because they, they are the sons of Abraham, sons and daughters of Abraham. But then second, it emphasizes the humanity, the humanity of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is, is Jewish. Right? And there's a, there's a, a, a if I could, it's not earthy isn't exactly the right term, but there's a, a reality to it, a literalness to it. Right? Jesus wasn't Nigerian. He wasn't Chinese. He was, he was Jewish. He loves the Nigerians. He loves the Chinese. He loves all the peoples, uh, but, but he was Jewish. Right? So it, it's a way to emphasize again this theme of the humanity of Jesus, Abraham. But then the most important reason it's Abraham is that Abraham was justified by faith. And so all of us who put our faith in Jesus are the offspring of Abraham. It's, it's us Gentiles too. Right? We're, we're included in this too. Galatians 3, 7. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Galatians 3, 29. If you are Christ's, if you've put your faith in Jesus, then you are Abraham's offspring. So when we read about Abraham's offspring here in Hebrews, that's us. You don't have to have, be of Jewish descent. It's anyone who puts his or her faith in Jesus Christ. And so who did Jesus come to help? He didn't come to help the angels. He came to help human beings, all of us who put our faith in him. Verse 17, so that's verse 16. Verse 17 now tells us how, the help, how he helped. So what kind of help did he offer? Well, he was made like us in every respect. This, again, we're going to just follow the, the logic here. So he became human, did, lived human life just like we did. That enables him, we'll, get, we'll look at this more later when we get into his priesthood, uh, and it empowers him, enables him to be a merciful and faithful high priest. What do priests do? Priests deal with sin. That's what priests do. Priests go between God and man, right? That's what a priest does. And so Jesus made himself a priest. He became a priest between the rest of us human beings and our perfect heavenly father. And that's where this word propitiation comes in. So what, what did he do as a high priest? Uh, he, he did what priests do. He offered a sacrifice of atonement. And that word propitiation is a technical term that means uh, to make a sacrifice of some kind that gets rid of, <laughs> removes the stain of sin by satisfying wrath. 
So propitiation satisfies wrath by the offering of a sacrifice, which is what Jesus did on the cross. So on the cross, Jesus offered himself a perfect, flawless sacrifice to to himself, if you're going to think about it in terms of the Trinity. We usually emphasize on the wrath of the Father, but really it's his own wrath. Jesus is fully God. And so Jesus offers his perfect human self as a sacrifice, the, 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 the perfect sacrifice to satisfy God's wrath against human sin, and it's effective. In so doing, he, take, he, he dealt with it. He took away, because he was fully human, he was able to do it. And so he effectively removed our sin. Right? There's that, you know, there's that old hymn, Washed in the Blood. It's true. We're washed in his blood. He cleansed us from all unrighteousness. He removed our sins, the psalmist says, as far as the east is from the west, which means the guilt is gone. Don't let it nag at you. The guilt is gone. The recrimination is gone. The self-reproach is gone. The shame is gone. And all that's left in its place is the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of God and his son, Jesus Christ. That's what he did for us according to verses 16 and 17. He cleanses us from all our sins. Uh, finally, the fourth benefit that this text talks about is that he helps us when we're tempted. Maybe the most practical of the bunch. I don't know. It depends where you're at these days. But, but he helps us when we're tempted. Right? He, and so because he experienced, and again, it, it, it's directly connected. In fact, this word suffer is repeated again, although this is a, it's a companion word. It's not exactly the same one we talked about before, but, but he comes back to this idea of suffering. It was in verse 10. It's now it's back here in verse 18. Uh, he, he is experienced because of his humanity. Jesus is therefore able to help us with, with the temptations we experience in our humanity. That's verse 18. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So the word suffer that he uses here in verse 18, it's translated suffer in our, um, our translations. Uh, the word actually means to, it's a neutral word that means to experience something. So you experience something. But in the Bible, if you go through and you look at the times the word is used, they're all negative. So in terms of biblical literature, the word always means to, to suffer something that's hard. Right? So to, it's not the same suffering as the, on the cross. It's more the idea of experience something, experiencing something that's difficult, something that's challenging or hard. And so that's why you have this idea of suffering here. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer the experience, the difficult experience of being tempted. It was, I don't know if you ever thought of this. You probably have. It wasn't easy for Jesus when he was tempted. Sometimes we, we, we get it in our heads that it must have been easy because he was fully God. I mean, Jesus is fully God. How could God be tempted? God cannot be tempted by evil. And so it must have been easy. You know, the devil comes with his temptations and Jesus is like, get out of here. You know, it's just like easy for him. But according to verse 18, it wasn't easy for him. It was not easy. Why? Because he's also fully human. So yeah, you know, his, his, in his God nature, he's like, get out of here. But in his human nature, he's, he's experiencing it just as intensely. He experienced that temptation just as intensely as all the rest of us humans do, all of his, his younger brothers and sisters. In fact, you can make the case, and I think it's a good case, that Jesus actually experienced temptation more intensely than we do. Some of you have run into this. C.S. Lewis made this case, uh, you know, that we experience, he experienced temptation more intensely than we do. And, and it has to do with something we'll get to in a few weeks when we get to chapter 4. Jesus was tempted in every way, yet was without sin. I can't say that. You can't say that. Only Jesus was tempted in every way, and yet was without sin. And so he never gave in. 
which means uh, Jesus never experienced the relief. And I, I hesitate on that word. It's an odd word to use, but I think it's the right one. He never experienced the relief of giving in. Uh, C.S. Lewis talked about this. I think he's one of the best ones to articulate it. It was in Mere Christianity. Uh, this is Lewis reflecting on temptation. He writes, A silly idea is current. He wrote this in the 1940s at the height of World War II. A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against the wind, not just by lying down and letting it blow over you. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, I love this part, that is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, now he brings it to Jesus, and Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Because, and Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. He gets us. He gets us. He knows even better than we do how hard it is to resist temptation. And that's why he's in the perfect position to help us. He's in the perfect position to help us when we're tempted. And that's the second half of verse 18, right? That he is, because he experienced that, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's able to help us. And that doesn't mean that he makes the temptations go away. Uh, although I will say sometimes he does. I've, I've heard testimonies like that. And even, you know, some, sometimes he just is, is, is especially kind that way and, and, and just delivers us from a temptation, maybe for good, maybe for a season. But, but sometimes he makes the temptations go away. A lot of the time, maybe most of the time, he doesn't. Most of the time what he does is he comes alongside us and he helps us to overcome temptation the same way he did, by trusting in the Father by abiding in the Holy Spirit, by leaning on God's power, by memorizing the scriptures, by praying, by fasting, and maybe most of all, by surrendering, right? That daily process of surrendering our desires to him. Uh, we, we, we need to pray the same prayer Jesus prayed in the garden. Again, there he is. We, you know, that garden of Gethsemane. Meditate on that one if you want an example of this. There he is in the garden, and, and, and he's tempted, sorely tempted, intensely tempted to skip out on the cross, right? I mean, wasn't this enough, Father? I lived 33 years and they were perfect. How about that? Is that enough, right? He wants to skip out on the cross in his humanness. That's the temptation. And then what does he pray? Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. That needs to be our prayer, right? That needs to be our prayer with, with our temptations. Jesus, I really want this right here, this thing, this this drug or this person or this, whatever it is, I, I, I really want this right here, but I know you really want this over here. You want this for me. So help me, Lord. Help me want what you want. I think it starts there. Help me want what you want instead of what I want. And then he'll carry us from there. Not my will, 
but thy will be done. He loves to answer that prayer. I think that's a big part. It's not the only thing verse 18 is talking about, but it's a big part of it. Not my will, but thy will be done. And so that's another benefit. And it's because of his humanity. Jesus, because he's fully human, he's able to help us like that. He's able to help us when we're tempted. So the commercials are right. If you catch them this morning, this afternoon, they're right. He does get us. He knows what it's like to be human. And because he does, he can help us. He can help us in the ways we need most. I want to close by, by asking you to do something, the, the smallest of assignments here. I want you to look at this list up here on the, on the wall behind me or on your notes if you took notes. And I want you to pick one. Right? I want to invite you to pick just one of these four benefits that we've talked about about this morning. And, and, and I encourage you to pick the one that's most relevant for you right now, right? With whatever you're facing right now. So, so maybe let's work backwards. Maybe you're struggling with temptation, right? Just for whatever reason, something's been going on in your life and, and you've been wrestling uh, with, with temptation in an intense kind of way lately, some kind of temptation. And what you need to remember this week is, is just that Jesus helps you. He's here for you. He's there for you when, when you're tempted. Or maybe it's guilt, right? You've been struggling with, with guilt and, and, and embarrassment, shame because of sins that you've committed. Maybe they're recent sins. Maybe they're distant sins decades ago. But whatever it is, they're, they're bubbling up and they're eating at you lately. And what you most need to remember from this time this morning is that Jesus has washed it all away. He cleanses us effectively once and for all from all of our sins. That's the one you need to remember. Or maybe it's number two. Maybe you're, you're struggling in some way or another because of death. And so perhaps it's a concern about your own death, fear of your own death. Or, or maybe you're, you're hurting because someone else has died or is about to die or something like that. It's, it's grief or some, something like that. That's, that's part of it too. And what you really need to remember is that Jesus set us free from that. He set us free from... The, he's already taken away its worst sting. Where, O oh, death, is your sting? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And so you need to remember that one. Or maybe, uh, maybe it's the first one. Maybe you've, you've just been feeling cut off lately. You feel isolated, you're alone, you're abandoned. Maybe it's all in your head. Maybe it's real. Maybe somebody has abandoned you. Uh, or maybe, you know, maybe you have been beating yourself up for just being human. Right? You, you, just, just human. Just your, your human frailty has been eating at you. And what you need to remember this week is that Jesus accepts you. And not just accepts you, but welcomes you. Uh, he is not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed to call you his sister or his brother. Pick one of the four. Pick one of the four, and we're going to commit it to prayer. I'm going to lead us in prayer right now. Uh, but, uh, you know, I invite you to do something else. You know, maybe write it on the back of your hand or set an alarm on your phone or something for the next week just to, to get that in your head. You know, something to remind you, yes, he's here for me when I'm tempted. Yes, he's set me free from the fear of death, whatever it might be. Find, maybe find some way. I don't have the specifics. You'll figure them out. But I, do something so that we don't just leave it here this morning, but that we can carry it with us into the week ahead. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we, um, we thank you for the reality that you get us. You do get us. and it, it's, it's real. <laughs> Our Savior became fully one of us, and we thank you for that so much. Uh, and I just want to pray for myself and for everyone who's hearing these words now or later uh, that you will help us in these different areas where we are prone to struggle. Uh, some of us uh, do struggle with isolation or a sense of abandonment or um, we're, we're just hard on ourselves and we need to remember that you accept us. Work in us that way. Some of us uh, are, are troubled by death from all sorts of different ways. Would you work there, Lord? 
Uh, some of us, temptation's been, it's been coming harder than late, harder than usual, Lord, Lord for, for whatever reason. Maybe it's stress in our lives or whatever, but, but that's been a struggle. Help us there. Uh, and some of us just need to remember uh, that you've washed it all the way. I just want to pray, Lord, whatever it is we need, that you would bear witness by your spirit with our own souls, our own spirits, to really understand and to um, appropriate and internalize these truths this morning, because they will change us from the inside out if we let you do that work. And so we invite you to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.